Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I am very excited to be today to be interviewing Dr. Emily Levine about her book published last year, 2021, by University of Chicago Press, titled Allies and Rivals, German-American Exchange and the Rise of the Modern Research University. Um, as many of the listeners will be academics, this is something quite interesting to a lot of us because many of us do work within these universities that Dr. Levine charts the rise of um, and shows really in this first history of the ascent of American higher education through the lens of German-American exchange, um, which looks at this transatlantic cultural exchange and competition throughout, looking at different universities and how this informed them, different ways of doing research and thinking about it, um, and really showing how the relationship between these two countries informs a lot of how universities have developed in Germany and in America um, and how that's sort of created the institutions that we know today. So thank you very much, Dr. Emily Levine, for joining us today. Thank you, Miranda, so much for the invitation and for that generous introduction. To start off, I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself a bit, your professional academic background, and explain how that led you to write this book? Sure, sure. Thanks so much. So I trained as a European and specifically German intellectual historian. And for nine years, I taught German and European history at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. And as I learned about higher education in the US, I began to uncover the backstory of the academic institutions and ideas that that we sometimes take to be self-evident. Um, and now I'm on the faculty of the Stanford Graduate School of Education, where I teach courses primarily on the history of higher education and the liberal arts. And I've spent time as a student, educator, and scholar at both private and public institutions in the U.S. as well as in Germany. And I've always been attuned to how it was that specific times and places become conducive to robust intellectual life, while other places remain sort of off the map. And I gravitate to stories about clusters of individuals and networks that illustrate how intellectual life takes shape. And more recently, how it is that institutions create what we might call the conditions of possibility for certain kinds of scholars and scholarship. So those interests led me to write a a book called Dreamland of Humanists about how a group of German Jewish intellectuals in Hamburg turned a mercantile city overnight into a haven for new kinds of ideas um, and institutions. And 
I guess after that, you could say I wanted to put that story into a wider frame to understand the origins and emergence of the modern university in general. So that leads me brilliantly to my next question, which is why do we need to understand the origins of the modern research university? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Like you said, it's a continuation of of the first. Um, I'm an intellectual historian, sort of at at at, at root, and and I excavate ideas um, that um, you know often go unquestioned. So I historicize these concepts by putting them in their place and time in which they were formed and first received. And there's so many concepts that are associated with the university, meritocracy, academic freedom, to name but two that fit in that category. And I think the popular conception is that these ideas have been around for so long, right? The university as an institution is so old. It's as old as the church, right? (laughs) We hear that one a lot, um, that we rarely question their origins. And we assume that they've always been there. But I argue that the university has survived not because it stayed the same, but because it's proved to be remarkably adaptable. Concepts like academic freedom are in, were invented by scholars, right, in response to a confluence of events. Um, and their decisions, lingering misconceptions, um, and, and the documents that they produced have set the fault lines for our current evade, um, debates. Um, you can say the same thing about the institution of the university, which as a design innovation, is an institution that unites the advancement of knowledge through research with its dissemination through teaching. And its inception in Germany in the first decade of the 19th century inspired an American adaptation that merged the German version with the English undergraduate college to produce a new bundle, you could say, that would be emulated the world over. But it's really important to remember that it, that it was never preordained that it would end up this way and and that American higher education in particular, um, which is really kind of the the subject of of the book at the end of the day, um, wouldn't necessarily be this way. And and in fact, almost as soon as it's founded, there were simultaneous cries that it was so entrenched and impossible to reverse, but also that it was totally inefficient and insufficient. And that's a contradiction that persists to this day. So I think as an intellectual historian, what interests me is, is how can we use the tools of historicism, turn them around to use them on our own institutions and these ideas that we take for granted? You know, why are teaching and research together under one roof? How did this come about? What are the implications of this? And how might the university respond to thinking about itself as an evolving institution? And I think these are questions that can be only answered with the help of rigorous historical excavation and intellectual analytic frames and a theory of institutional evolution, which is which is what I try to provide. And so this is sort of where I want to start with, um, and exactly on the idea of things that we don't question, um, but also the university being a lot more adaptable than we often think. Um, reading the beginning of your book, I saw two facts that I absolutely knew and had taken for granted and never actually thought about, which is that the oldest universities, the one that we talk about, or that they talk about as being so old, um, usually in Paris, Oxford, Cambridge, um, are in fact not the models of the modern research university. And those models come out of Germany and the United States, which are much, much younger than Paris, Oxford, or Cambridge. Um, and so there's something sort of striking about that of, wait a second, this thing comes out of something actually relatively late in its existence. 
um, and kind of not from where you would expect. In some ways, you would expect adaptation to come from kind of established places that have ability to do this, not from sort of the middle of nowhere in some senses. Um, So I was wondering, could you explain for us why you argue that there's something about the federalist political structure that explains how it was possible for Germany and the US to be the places where this adaptation happens, even though they may not be where we would have thought at the time sort of the heart of intellectualism lay. Yeah, it's a it's a really fantastic way of of putting it and it it just it's it's exciting to hear that that's your reaction because it's exactly the kind of thing that I look for <laughs> um sort of uh, to to under the hood. Um, and this gets to the question of whether we can isolate the conditions of possibility for intellectual preeminence. Like why did it um, or what did Germany and America have that France and England lacked, um, right? And might account for the latter's failure to keep pace with the former's development of knowledge centers in this crucial period of the 19th century. And of course, many possible factors can be identified. You know, I'm not, I'm not an economist who's obsessed with equations and trying to identify, you know, like the absolute indisputable sort of feature of, of causation. But, but what stands out to me and what I highlight in my story and in some ways is my distinct contribution is, as you say, the federalist political structures of the U.S. and Germany. And, and, by, and by this, I mean, there was a dynamic relationship between decentralization and central authority. Germany, of course, was a collection of states, but not yet a country, and America, a young nation on the cusp of industrialization. Um, In both cases, there were sort of parallel debates about where power should lie. And I argue that there's a similar debate about knowledge um, going on at this time. Sociologists of knowledge like Josef Ben-David and Robert Merton have long identified the benefits of center-periphery competition for innovation or the advancement of knowledge. And what I do is map that tradition of the sociology of knowledge onto an international political context. Um, And I think the reason why this is important, why it's important to combine history with sociology or what historians of science sometimes called internalist and externalist explanations is that internal histories simply don't explain everything. In particular, they can't explain, say, entirely the successes and failures of these large systems. And this becomes clear with the wildly different success stories of the German, say, and French systems at the end of the 19th century. Right. So, so if you, as I argue in the, in the first chapter, if you look at those countries um, you know, their innovations at the end of the 19th century are in some ways not all that different. They both pursue teaching and research. They both integrate technical skills into education. And they both envision elite roles for university-trained uh, professionals. Of course, the Germans would play up the rejection of the French and vice versa. But the similarities suggest that the external political context, right, and in, and in particular, the center-periphery dynamics is as important as any internal logic in explaining what by the 20th century would be called the French decline. Um, So in short, France fails to develop an alternative um, to the cultural center of Paris, and therefore it lacks this center-periphery competition that was crucial for the advancement of knowledge, while the decentralized systems like Germany and America, which have strong regional centers, turn out to be important conditions of possibility for success. So that explains sort of one aspect of this rise. Um, 
And I want to ask you, therefore, about another one that you discuss, which is the fact that this is off, this is happening essentially at roughly the same time as the rise of the nation state. Mm-hmm. Um, how did that impact the modern university and in particular its organization? Yeah, so the nation state is essential to the story that I tell about the origins of the modern university. And in fact, I think it explains why that story begins in Berlin in 1806 and not in Paris or um, Bologna, or Oxford, right in the 11th, 12th, or 13th century. And this becomes clear when we travel back to Berlin, where Napoleon has just defeated the Prussians, captured the city, and in an effort to consolidate his power, shut down 22 or over half of the universities in the German lands. And the next year, in, in response to protests from unemployed faculty, Kaiser Friedrich Wilhelm III reputedly declared the state must replace through intellectual powers what it has lost in the way of physical ones. And so we meet Wilhelm von Humboldt, who answers this call, albeit reluctantly at first, and he becomes sort of the ur-academic innovator. Wilhelm, of course, was a linguist by training, an aristocratic diplomat by trade, and the elder brother of the celebrated scientist Alexander. And with Humboldt at the helm over the next three years, the University of Berlin was established as an institution in, 18, in, in 1810 that reflects the aspirations of this war-torn state. So it would train a professional civil service and a military, and it would join and it would enjoy an unprecedented amount of independence to produce and authenticate knowledge. And we see this through formulation um, as Humboldt lays it out in a series of letters and documents um, in which he describes the relationship of this new institution to society in which scholars receive patronage and a great deal of autonomy to pursue research in exchange for providing services to that society, usually but not always teaching. And scholars have tended to refer to this as the Humboldt ideal. But in my telling, it's it's far more transactional. And it's this exchange that I call the academic social contract. And I think this is what distinguishes the University of Berlin and this new kind of institution from its antecedents that you that you mentioned. And it be, marks the beginning of the modern university. And it quickly becomes the envy of the, the British, right? Matthew Arnold is, is like envious of this institution, the Russians, the Japanese, among others, who see this as a central component, a sine qua non even, of a self-respecting modern state. And so we soon get them all over Central Europe in Oslo in 1811, in Warsaw, in 1816, in Athens in 1837. Um, and I think, I think this is a really important part of sort of the, the arc that I'm, of, of the story that I'm telling, because we think today sometimes about universities as global institutions or even cynically transnational, you know, neoliberal corporations. And of course, there's a kernel of, of truth to this. Um, there's no doubt also that, that, that my story shows that universities have long been conduits of our shared humanity. But they're not exclusively cosmopolitan organizations, right? They, they've stood at the crossings of both nations and the wider world. Even as they promote and exchange ideas and the free movement of scholars, they serve the nation, you might even say above all. And, and I think it's really important to remember that they owe their emergence and their evolution to these nations and, and their, their states. And... So this idea of kind of the proliferation, right, the, that 
other countries look at what's happening and go, oh, we want one of those. Um, you discuss a number of examples of prominent people, especially going from America to Germany, um, attracted by what's on offer there, um, which then later, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, as those Americans studying in Germany then go back to the States, they are often the people that are bringing these ideas back with them and try and start institutions or change existing institutions to sort of fit these models. Um, and one of them that is sort of particularly attractive, um, and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit later about how this was attractive in some senses because it was open to more people than it would have been in the United States, was the German PhD. What was distinctive about this, looking at other offerings, um, and so why were so many Americans quite keen to go over to Germany for this particular thing. Yeah, sometimes you think like the German PhD was the holy grail or something, the way that it was talked about. Um, at, at the time, the, the BA or the AB, the Bachelor of Arts, was the degree associated with the early American college. And, and that was a clear expression or adoption of the same degree that was given in English and Scottish colleges at the time. Um, and it was a credential that signified a certain amount of time, usually four years, and a certain amount of competence in general education through much of the 19th century that I cover. In the U.S., that curricular program was, was set. In fact, there's a debate that emerges at the end of the 19th century about electives. That's sort of an aspect of Lernfreiheit or freedom of learning. Um, but, but crucially, for much of this period, um, you know, the BA isn't required to enter into advanced programs that, that, that we now consider professional, like law or medicine. The PhD, on the other hand, was the degree, as you say, awarded in German universities. There was no BA. Rather, one needed an Abitur or a certificate from a gymnasium to enter into university. And in some ways, the gymnasium plays the role of what Americans would later consider sort of lower tier general education in, in the U.S. In fact, one of the sources of confusion was, in fact, these, these systems were really apples and oranges. Um, we can maybe come back to that later. But um, but the Americans who go to Germany are just enthralled to this freedom that they experience there, this higher level of Wissenschaft or academic research associated with the PhD. Um, they're awed, of course, also by the idea of this credential, right? That's that's higher and 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 um, and seems more important than their BA. Um, they're awed, of course, also by the scope and quantity of the libraries, which make theirs back at home at Harvard and Yale look pitifully small. So, so the credential of the PhD becomes a sort of important symbol uh, for the professionalization of the American Academy. But as you say, they don't just adopt it wholesale. It's a slow hybridization process that changes its meaning in the American context, um, I think, in two important ways. First, and, and, and here we meet the figure Daniel Coit Gilman. He's one of those um, sojourners who goes to Germany, he goes to, to, to Europe visits institutions and comes back to his home institution, Yale, in the 1850s, late 1850s, to urging Yale to adopt the PhD. And in fact, Yale will adopt the PhD in 1860, start giving the PhD in 1861, the first institution in America to do so. But Yale still is an English college, really, right? It doesn't, it, it doesn't want to do much more than teach theology, German, um, classics, general education, it still lacks the whole kind of institutional apparatus um, until he 
becomes the founding president of a new institution, right? Which allows in some ways um, him to, to let go of all of that in the past. And that's the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore in, in 1870-76. But as I explained, he didn't just cut and paste the German research institution or the German PhD, even if he might have preferred to. In fact, he, he didn't have hold undergraduates in such high regard. He would have liked to do, to do away with them altogether, but his Baltimore railroad magnet donors wouldn't wouldn't have it. And so he comes up with a kind of uh, compromise. Uh, he would combine the general education of the English college with the specialized education of the German research university, the BA with the PhD, to get this new um, hybrid, the modern American university. And that's that's the model that would sort of then be emulated, um, I would argue, the, the the world over in the next in the next century. Um, but there was a second important move that was that sort of happened as a result of this adaptation, and that was the beginning of the creation of a credential society, you know, as it was dubbed by the sociologist Randy Randy Collins, and and you see this very actively in these in these um, at work with these academic entrepreneur presidents like Gilman. You know, working hard to make their degrees more than just fiat. In fact, he would say we need to make the, the PhD at, at, at Hopkins worth its face in the currency of the world, right? That is, it has to be worth something. The Germans in particular have to help make it worth something, right? And so they, they actively create a market for this good that they're selling and they fashion it as something associated with status. And this happens over the course of the first part of the 20th century and then you know, later, and, and I don't really deal with this, but by the second half of the 20th century, the, the, the sort of BA has become the degree that is a ticket to the middle class, right? But that, that credential society begin, be, building begins already at the end of the 19th century. And it's a process that's lampooned by figures like William James at Harvard, who writes of a PhD octopus overtaking the American ad- Academy. He bemoans the specialization Associated, associated with it, much as Nietzsche did on the other side of Atlantic, and, you know, seeks to return to um, general education before all these titles and associated with real learning. And, and that debate continues today. So that not only answers my question, um, but also introduces us to another aspect of your book that I think does a large part of powerfully showing us how, as you said at the very beginning, what we've ended up with today was not inevitable. Um, And that is really down to some pretty key people um, at the right place, at the right time, um, with a lot of their own sort of uh, drive and backing to really try and implement these changes that both were seen to be, but also if you sort of look at what was there and what was thereafter, are in some ways quite different, quite radical. Um, to what was there before. Um, Gilman, as you've just mentioned, definitely was one of those. Um, Are there maybe one or two other people that you could introduce us to specifically for the kind of amount of lasting impact they've had? Yeah, absolutely. These are, these are the, this is a crucial aspect of the story, as you say. I mean, I'm a true believer that institutions do not sort of march through time with their with their own sheer force. Um, the, the individuals pull those levers of change. And I'm particularly just I'm 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 really 
drawn to individuals. We've already spoken about Gilman and Humboldt, these leaders who might call variously academic entrepreneurs or academic innovators whom I, I view just indispensable to this to this story. I think next to Humboldt, Friedrich Althoff is probably the most influential um, academic entrepreneur in the German sphere. He was the director of academic affairs in the project Prussian uh, education ministry for nearly 30 years and enjoyed a much greater influence over that education system um, in, in many ways that, than American university leaders in, in their respective country. He controlled budgets and policies. He, he was called the Bismarck of the university system, right, just to give you a sense of his, his kind of power. Um, and um, he had an outsized personality. He had enemies like Max Weber, but he also had so-called spies in departments like the mathematician Felix Klein, who also comes up in, in, in my book. And he, and he strikes these bargains wherever he goes, fashioning the, the, the a German higher education system um, to, you know, to, to be truly excellent, which is his goal. But he also comes up with a policy that would just define, I think, um, not only German higher education, but really the whole sphere of higher education in the late 19th and early 20th century. And that's this balance between the advancement of science and the engrandizement of the nation state. Right? He talks about the Weltgeltung Deutscher Wissenschaft, the worldwide reputation of German academic research. And he's constantly sort of met, balancing cosmopolitanism and nationalism, um, the, the polls that we were talking about earlier. Um, so he's a, he's a really important sort of sine qua non. It's hard to imagine the German sort of higher education system becoming what it, what it did without, without Friedrich Althoff. Um, but then there are other important entrepreneurs in the story as well who didn't have as much power. And, and they, they innovated from the margins, I would say. And I'll just mention one other on the American side. Of course, many of these leaders were white, male, and Protestant. But some Americans who went to Ger Germany were none of these. Um, Martha Carey Thomas is one of them. Um, she was just an incredible feminist, um, female um, higher education innovator who took advantage of her Quaker family's openness to female education and the relative openness of education in Germany to travel to Leipzig and Zurich to complete her PhD summa cum laude in 1882. And from there, she's able to engineer um, sort of the situation to become the founding president in, in all but name of Bryn Mawr, an all-girls college, which she shapes as the sort of Johns Hopkins University for women, um, insofar as she draws on um, the German traditions and also awards the PhD at this, at this you know, girls college, which is very rare. Um, um, and, and um, you know, it's, it's interesting because all of these figures kind of share certain qualities. They're obviously all utterly ambitious. They're very ca charismatic. Um, and they also have the same kind of skills so that you can start to sort of, sort of um, extrapolate certain leadership skills um, that these individuals share, surveying the vast complex field of higher education, brokering contracts with many constituents, often speaking differently to different parties, knowing what, sort of having an instinct, instinct for what the university should hold on to and, and what it should change. Um, so there's this also sort of implicit message of the book that, you know, these leaders in education matter. Um, and while it's commonplace in the fields of, say, dis diplomacy or politics to study leaders and read their bio biographies, 
in education, a lot of these leaders go continue to go, you know, largely unknown. And so unearthing them and arguing for their sort of role in this history and their use as models for the present day is, is, is an important goal of the book. And it really does make it very clear throughout the book. Um, I'm glad you picked those two to mention as they were perhaps some of the people that leapt most off the page. Um, but for listeners, there are a number of really interesting people um, that are part of the story. Um, but I wanted to pick up on something that we've now touched on, this idea of who education is for. Um, and this is a debate that you show in the book has been there the whole time um, and is something that we are probably quite familiar with today. The idea, um, speaking particularly of American universities, that they're sort of lip service paid to providing equal access and being meritocratic, but actually being really elitist and hard to break into. Of course, this is not a criticism just of American universities, um, but often of many universities. Um, and you argue in the book that, quote, American education leaders used the weight and inaccessibility of the German philosophical tradition and the expensive equipments and books to create a system that reinforced the determinants of status within the emerging stratification. So this is essentially an argument about how American leaders would use the German influence to sort of maintain barriers but then be able to disavow that and say, but we really want to be meritocratic. We just can't because of these things we've inherited. So what were they trying to argue about? What, what were they saying about this German influence? Um, and to what extent do you think it was actually a thing? Yeah, yeah. So this is it, uh, another really, really um, excellent question. So to answer it, I think I'll tell the story of the Flexner report, um, which, which I talk about in chapter five. And I think illustrates the advantages and disadvantages of professionalization and the tension between excellence and access that results from improvements in standardization or the raising of standards um, that are definitely still with us today. Um, so, so in other areas of what I call transatlantic competitive emulation that we've been talking about, the Americans never adopt wholesale the German model of professionalization, but they hybridize Prussian-inspired changes with their evolving ecosystem that ultimately produces elevated degrees that we've talked about that increase privilege to create some opportunities for social mobility. We talked about Martha Carey Thomas, but at the same time, they make changes that increase stratification, no doubt for individuals and institutions. And the most visible expression of this process was in the field of medicine in the first decade of the 20th century. And it's important because it provides the blueprint really for all of the other fields. And like these other innovations, it's the result of three men. The first was Andrew Carnegie, um, of course, the philanthropist. We know him from other stories, who in 1901 retires from business and endows his first institution, the Carnegie Institution of Washington. And he seeks opportunities to standardize um, education um, and create a kind of this big system, much as he has done in, um, in business. Second, we have Henry Pritchett. He's a Midwesterner who studies in Germany. Uh, he shows more acumen as organizer rather than academic. He rises to become the president of MIT, and he's tapped by Carnegie to run the new Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, or CFAT, which is founded in 1905 and was responsible for creating the pension system and the credit hours, among other innovations, but whose aim is really to use money as an incentive to motivate institutions to raise their standards. 
And in the field of medicine, the problem was that competition had just had not on its own produced high quality medicine, nor with with uh, without regulations or incentives had had it weeded out the subpar physicians and institutions. And so Carnegie and Pritchett hire uh, another man by the name of Abraham Flexner to help solve this problem. And Flexner is an outsider like Pritchett. He's a Jew from Kentucky. He's written this work called The American College. It's sort of a testy critique of the university that, that um, gets the attention of Carnegie and Pritchett in 1908. And the Carnegie Institution dispatches Flexner for a year around the US and Canada, gathering data to produce a report on the dire state of medical education. And what he found, <laughs> finds is no doubt embarrassing. Lack of space, the absence of appropriate tools, deceitful deans, and some of his descriptions um, that you can read on the index cards in the Library of Congress and ends up in his report that I that I write about in the book are, are really quite amusing. He writes about the combination of business, religion, and pseudoscience at, at, at Michigan's Missionary Medical College is revolting. You know, the medical school in Portland is a disgraceful affair. Another one is is like a joint stock company. So he publishes this expose known simply as the Flexner Report because of its, it is so damaging that ultimately it creates the incentive to change. And the Flexner Report recommends really just a few key um, changes that, that essentially create the program that exists today, raising entrance requirements, having a four-year graded curriculum, integrating preclinical training, um, into the program and, and sort of locating these medical schools in universities. And the American Medical Association, which had been incorporated in 1897 to reform schools, had wanted to do things like this, but it was never able to make these changes on its own. So it quickly endorses the report and it becomes the de facto accrediting agency um, through its rating system that judges schools on their ability to meet these goals. And, and it continues, the AMA continues to play that role. Um, so what is the result of this? Well, well, some of it's rather positive, right? I think we can agree that, you know, having high standards and excellence, in particular for doctors, if you're going to be cut open by one, right, um, is, is desirable. Um, and very quickly, uh, the number of for-profit medical institutions, of, what, of which there are many, have dropped, right, as a result of this activist social Darwinian strategy. By 1915, it goes from 131 to 95 of these for-profit schools. So some aspects of, of, of this change were good, but not everybody won. So, so who were the losers? Well, first humanists on both sides of the Atlantic you know, bemoaned the degradation of the liberal arts, which has now been demoted to the pre-professional side of education. But also on a social level, the Flexner Report was only the first in a series of reports ostensibly focused on standard, standards that would adversely affect Blacks and women. So in particular, the institutions in, that in America are called historically Black colleges and universities. Since most of, most of the Black medical colleges were unable to fund the changers that Flexner demanded, right? They, they couldn't all become Hopkins Medical School. They were, in effect, regulated out of existence. So I, I think there were about 13 HBCUs um, before the Flexner Report and only two remaining within a couple of years after. 
And this was the desired effect of Carnegie and his team, right, and their activist social Darwinian strategy. What America needed was fewer, better doctors, Flexner insisted. And in the report, you see maps illustrating where the current schools are and how they might be reorganized and reduced. Um, There's no doubt that in this this sort of widespread effort towards professionalization and, and excellence, the losers are the schools on the geographic, institutional, and, and social periphery that were forced to close. And when, when critics pointed out these undemocratic consequences of these high standards, Flexner said, you know, don't, don't worry, these for-profits were doing more harm than good, and the right distribution of better institutions would eventually arise, right? Good doctors would get around to everyone. But as it turns out, they, they didn't, right? A, a 1920 study showed that already doctors were gravitating to wealthier areas um, and the distribution of physicians was, was correlated with, were, with per capita income. Um, and yet these emphasis on high standards and excellence marched on, you know, aiming to elevate the best universities and institutes and institutions devoted to research at the expense of those on the edges. So we, we might say that in taking the German model, which was only ever intended for a segment of the population, and wedging it into the American democracy, Pritchett and Flexner emphasized the pursuit of excellence over any systematic attention to democratization or egalitarianism. Um, and that's certainly one of the decisions that we, we continue to feel the impact of. Absolutely. I think that makes it make today's situation make a lot of sense when we understand how we got there. Um, and so staying on this idea of discrimination, obviously, when one looks at the title of your book and realizes that you're looking at um, the US and Germany in this particular period, you go, hang on, what about the world wars? Um, and that's obviously not so much the allies part of your title, and maybe not so much the rivals part either. It seems to go a bit further than that. Um, and you demonstrate sort of moving on from Andrew Carnegie, the idea that anti-Semitism was quite impactful on academics on both sides of the Atlantic, not just during World War II, but beforehand as well. But then you also argue that um, that kind of influences a lot of things. It wasn't a clear cut thing of America was not anti-Semitic and Germany was. Um, and in fact, you make the case, as you have throughout the book, that it was never inevitable that German Jewish scholars would kind of obviously have a place to flee to refuge in the United States. And yet you show that they are, that quite significant numbers of German Jewish scholars do go straight to the United States if they're able to get out of Germany um, before World War II. And so what enabled them to be welcomed in the United States in such high numbers, despite the fact that anti-Semitism was such a significant problem in both countries mm-hmm. and didn't magically end when World War II started. Yeah, opportunism. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, really, it's, um, no, it's a really good question. Hitler's academic purge, of course, brought forth the largest exile of scholars in, in modern history. Um, and even as this transformation clinched American post-World War II cultural and intellectual hegemony, it's really important, I think, I want my readers to understand that it also preserved ethnic and racial hierarchies. So why do Americans welcome the Jews? Um, well, on a personal level, the German Jewish refugees 
sort of paradoxically become the bearers of a tradition that excluded them, right? And indeed had been unfit, you know, deemed unfit to pass on. But in America, these luminaries like Erwin Panofsky and Eric Auerbach are seen, I think, as connectors to that European tradition, which over the course of this hundred year tradition, I've tried to show was in this kind of delicate dance of com- competition and cooperation with, with America. So these now, these now exiled German Jewish scholars in a way become resources and, and they will sort of pass on that tradition that has excluded them becoming the founding fathers of fields in art history, comparative literature, and, and numerous others in America. And I think when one looks at the sort of language of the campaign on behalf of German Jewish refugees and the private debates about how best to help them, you begin to see, I think, this uncomfortable opportunism in, in the rhetoric and in the strategy. Um, and, and um, you know, rather than argue on the basis of humanitarian concerns, for example, we see say, the sympathetic um, program officers at the Rockefeller Foundation in Paris and New York, speaking of how, you know, the considerable number of these first-class unemployed might find opportunities, right? Opportunities is always, is always um, uh, uh, a key, key, key word um, in this, in this campaign. Um, And of course, it's very transactional. The Jewish philanthropists who are behind the emergency committee in aid of displaced German scholars, later foreign scholars, are expected basically um, to foot the bill, right? Um, and to pay, um, you know, for these these refugee sal- scholars' um, salaries. Um, but th- th- these Jewish philanthropists would shoulder much of the financial uh, burden. Um, no, was everybody just a pure opportunist? No, I think there was a combination of opportunism and humanitarianism. Sometimes it's really hard, as with much of this history, to tell the difference. So our friend Abraham Flexner, author of the Flexner Report, um, who founds the Institute for Advanced Study, um, and I said as a Jew himself, you know, he's always vowing in his in his um, uh, campaigns that his move to, for example, hire Albert Einstein or Erwin Panofsky is driven more by the desire to give America a leg up in international scientific competition than it is driven by humanitarian concerns. Um, Now, did Flexner tout the economic and scientific benefits of hiring refugees to avoid fanning the flames of anti-Semitism when his heart really lay with the Jews? Or did he really prioritize the aspirations of U.S. scientific hegemony you know, and use these hard off refugees to get closer to the goal. No, I think it's probably both um, as, as much is with these stories. But, you know, I think what I definitely am trying to communicate is that campaign to absorb German Jewish refugees was, was far from purely a humanitarian effort. And I think that that's something that is actually a pretty consistent thread throughout the book. And all, all of these, as you said, very charismatic figures is there were a lot of different reasons that they were trying so hard to do things. And Some of them were sort of to benefit the community and others and learn. And some of them were not always about that. Um, And they, those things sometimes often would go together in a way, um, which was quite interesting. 
So in the spirit, now that we've kind of done a whistle stop tour, an absolute whistle stop tour, listeners who want to know more details, please do read the book. We cannot possibly cover all of it in an interview. Um, But I sort of want to go under the hood, as it were, of your book in the same way that you've gone under the hood um, of the universities that many of us belong to. Um, And to ask, is there something that you came across in the research or writing of this book that particularly surprised you? Sometimes this can be big, small. Sometimes it's something that doesn't even make it into the book. But I think it's always something quite interesting for those of us who also do research to hear about kind of the behind the scenes. Yeah. So, I'd yeah. No, I love surprises <laughs> from um, in in the archival discovery process. And the thing that surprised me became the basis for the whole book. In fact, um, as I originally set out to research a, a very different book. Um, when I began this in, in 2012, <laughs> um, which was a book about extra university institutions um, in the 1920s, a sort of continuation of the, the, the fir- my first book, Dream- Dreamland of Humanists, um, that I was talking about earlier. But, but I entered the Prussian archives in 2012 for what I thought would be sort of some brief background. And I became engrossed in this lesser known aspect of the university's origins. Because the traditional story, as, as you may well know, it, it's the one that certainly um, Americans are told, that Americans go to Germany and that they imported the modern research university to America. But this simply doesn't hold up to the archives. Um, in the archives, I quickly learned about Germans who are traveling to America as early as the last quarter of the 19th century, eager to learn about American innovations in higher education including co-education, private philanthropy to sponsor scholarship, and the new American campus um, as as, um, designed by um, the Stanfords, for example, in Palo Alto. And I became persuaded that this bi-directional transatlantic exchange is really what was uh, unique here. That's kind of what spins the motor of this intellectual institutional political story. And it was so different from this one-sided story that we were often told, and also one in which the chronology was very different, where 1933 or 45 that we were just talking about is the beginning of the story. And it's the sort of, without it, we would never have had sort of the American hegemony in the sciences. Um, And that's just not the case from in the hundred year story that that I unearthed, um, in which this two-way exchange among individuals um, is is really fueling this competition between these belated empires, Germany and America, culminating in in many ways in the intellectual narrative uh, around World War II. It's always great when you come across a surprise, and then I can imagine even more amazing when that leads to a whole book. So thank you for sharing that with us. Um, And as my final question, my traditional final question, um, what are you working on now or next? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so well, like all of us, I'm catching catching up and and catching my breath. Um, But as I emerge from this project, Allies and Rivals, I'm now working on a new book project that takes me back to my roots in the humanities, in which I plan to investigate the origins of the liberal arts. And it's a project that I'm calling The Invention of the Liberal Arts. And I'm still kind of deciding whether or not I'm interested in the humanities per se or 
general education or, or something else. But my primary interest lies in the period from about 1930s to the 1950s or 60s, in which a group of American education reformers with European background or education create, they fashion this idea of a community of scholars who read, organized around books that, that transcends time. And despite the idea that this, that there's this sort of set of, uh, or group of books that looks backwards or even is trans-historical or ahistorical, my argument is that this decision was, um, was very much a response to the war, to the threat of Nazism, um, to the um, influx of the immigrants that we were just talking about. Um, and that, in fact, you could kind of, to a certain degree, we could speak about the reinvention of the liberal arts over many different epics in which in each era, a new vision of it is fashioned in response to a perceived threat from industrialization to vocationalism to over-specialization, sort of projecting a vision of an older or ahistorical um, vision of general education onto the current moment. And so, you know, what I, I think with all of the debate about the sort of future of the humanities and its central importance, um, what I'd like to do is sort of unearth the origins of the idea of the humanities, um, not to bring it down, of course, I'm an advocate of the humanities, but, you know, to hope, hopefully in that process of, of unsettling to, to figure out a way to, to build um, going forward. Well, that certainly sounds fascinating. Um, I know I would read that book and I'm sure many listeners would too. So please do go write that book and then come yes, tell us about it. in about 12 years, yeah. <laughs> Great, 12 years, I'll sign you up. Um, but in the meantime, listeners can read your current book, which again is titled Allies and Rivals, German-American Exchange and the Rise of the Modern Research University published by University of Chicago Press in 2021. Dr. Emily Levine, thank you so much for joining us today. And, and thank you so much for the invitation. I'm really grateful for the opportunity to share my work.